Meg Hunter Kilmer, and we did a Life on the Rock. And one thing we didn't talk about was discernment. I know you've given talks on discernment. And what are some what are the things you tell people about? Because you you have a special calling in your life. Maybe you should describe that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm a missionary. I live out of my car, and I drive around the country and fly around the world and tell people how much God loves them. So it's been almost 10 years that I've been living out of my car, 50 states, 25 countries, driven about 300,000 miles. So as you can imagine, that took not only a lot of discernment to realize that's what God was calling me to, but it's it's a constant discernment because it's a question of where am I going to spend tomorrow night, right? And uh, what country do I feel like I need to go to next? And that kind of thing. And a lot of times it's it'll be something like, I think I'm going to go to Alabama next month. Who wants me to come do something in Alabama? Um, but there, you know, that's trickier when you go into a foreign country, right? Yeah, and yeah. and you're just, I mean, Malta, I just felt really, really called to Malta. And one time I had met a lady whose family lived in Malta. And so I just messaged her on Facebook and was like, can you make this happen for me? And, you know, it worked out. So it's, it's a lot of that, a lot of... Um, just trying to get a sense of what the Spirit is trying to do. And so through that, I think I've learned quite a lot about healthy discernment and unhealthy discernment. And so generally speaking, my best piece of discernment advice is stop seeking God's will and start seeking God. Because we spend all of this time obsessing over God's will. Like it's a sneaky thing. Like he's trying to trick us, like he's giving us clues. And if we miss them, he's cackling behind a bush because we're going to be unhappy. And we don't realize that the purpose of discernment is to be in the heart of God. And so the, the way we do that is by running after God, not obsessing over his will, not sitting paralyzed, waiting for some sign that tells us exactly what to do, but spending serious time in silent prayer every day, just trying to love Jesus and trusting that God is going to lead us from there. So for me, broadly speaking, my discernment looks like spending 45 minutes in front of a tabernacle every day, just being with Jesus and trusting that he's going to form my heart to desire what he desires, or he's going to step in and fix it after I mess up. Or, you know, like he, he's going to make it work in the end, right? And I, I tell people all the time, I am fairly convinced that I'm going to go to my judgment and Jesus is going to be like, honey, you thought I wanted you to be a what now? <laughs> a, a hobo missionary? You know, that's not a thing, right? People don't do that. And I'm going to sort of freeze and go, but I, and he's going to say, oh, but good job. It was weird, but you tried really hard. I think God is just so pleased with our earnest attempts to serve him. And we don't have to be afraid of getting things wrong because he's going to work with that, right? He's going to write straight with those crooked lines. And it doesn't have to be this anxiety-inducing thing. It can just be the product of a love affair and recognizing that if your beloved finds that you're going entirely the wrong direction, he's not going to throw up his hands and quit on you. Right. He's going to call you back or he's right. going to turn you another direction. Yeah, and it seems like sometimes focusing kind of in a perfectionistic way about God's will, it's like we're such kind of a mess anyway. You know, we're going to be doing things imperfectly. We have our sins. So just from the get-go, it's not going to be a perfect achievement of God's will, right? Exactly. <laughs> I'm bringing a lot, of, a lot of my own stuff to it. So, yeah, I like that. They, you know, even the secular world talks about success. 
is oftentimes just repeated tries. Mm -hmm. And you know, just this one worked. Exactly. And I think that so often we just become immobilized by mm -hmm. a fear of getting something wrong. We don't realize that God works through the getting something wrong. Right. right? Even with horrific and egregious sin, God can bring good out of that. So obviously he's going to bring good out of my well-meant efforts to serve him, even if I am utterly mistaken. Right. So just trusting that God isn't limited mm -hmm. by some ideal perfect plan. Mm -hmm. you know. And this is one thing that I love in the lives of the saints is you see these people who just had one false start after another after another. And then in the end, they're able to say, oh, you know what? None of that was right, but God worked through all of it. And he used right. all of that to make me the person he needed me to be. What is challenging about your your life? Because you've you've had like ten years on the road. What has been some of the challenges for you? I mean, honestly, it's the small talk that gets me, <laughs> um, and and answering the same questions a thousand times, which truly is because I have a hard time remembering that the person in front of me is the unique and unrepeatable object of the right. eternal love of God, and right. so. They ask me a question and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've answered that question so many times. Instead of thinking, this is someone who is seeking to know God. Mm -hmm. And they're asking me these questions because they're hungry for truth and they're hungry to be seen and loved. Right. And instead I'm like, oh, just Google it. Like it's on my website, right? <laughs> so that, that even though my life is completely different, right? Every day is something new. There is a monotony to it mm -hmm. that makes it hard to be present to God in that repeated movement. And I think it's true of everybody, right? Of parents who are home with their children demanding a snack a hundred times a day and mm -hmm. people who are working in offices and people who are retired. And it's hard to rejoice in what, in what just feels demanding in its repetition mm -hmm. and to be able to stop and say, if this were the first time this had happened, if this were the only time this had happened, right. this would be something glorious. Right. If I had longed my whole life to have a child and now I finally had one child in mm -hmm. front of me demanding a snack, mm -hmm. I would delight in that. Right. So let me embrace that as though it was the only time, even though it's the 75th time today. And that's <laughs> happened for the last 15 years straight. Right. <laughs> right. And I would think you have to have a lot of detachment in your life. You have no place to lay your head, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, I'm not that into stuff, so that helps. Like it wasn't, it's not a real sacrifice yeah. to me not to own much. I do, I am a homebody. Oh. I love having a place to just shut down. I love sitting on a couch and watching Netflix. I love yeah. not having to perform, right. um, but just to be able to be around yeah. people who actually know me and don't demand anything from me. So that is really hard. Um, it's hard being detached from a desire for home and family. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's hard on a much deeper level than I think I realized when I first started. Because yeah. I was just like, oh yeah, you know, like I have to, I have to be detached from sort of the world's esteem mm -hmm. in being intentionally homeless and unemployed. <laughs> um, but you know, like I don't love stuff that much and it's yeah. not that big of a deal. And right. just, you know, 10 years of, being unrooted and not having any home in mm. a meaningful sense of the word that's heavy that weighs mm. on you for sure yeah do you have uh you write a lot about talk a lot about the saints do you have like 
people in your life that has really inspired you or struck you as holy that really spoke to you? People I've met face to face. I feel like it's incredibly arrogant that the answer isn't, yes, here's this whole list. Um, but I think I've just always been profoundly aware of the brokenness of humanity. Uh, and I think particularly coming of age in 2002 and the crisis in the church, um, I I have never, even before then, I've never really been inclined to, um, to fix my heart on a conviction of holiness of somebody that I've encountered because until the church has said this person is a saint, there's just no way of knowing. And it's, it's not, I don't think it's like a defensive thing. I think it's that I, like, I love Jesus so much and I know that that's the standard for holiness. Mm -hmm. And I know that people are broken and I know that they're flawed. And I think that I might have otherwise had a tendency to sort of an idol worship that can really damage people's faith. I mean, we've mm-hmm. seen what happens you know, with, with the downfall of Father Maciel and Father Karapi and these other major figures mm-hmm. who people had taken so much into the center mm-hmm. of their relationship with Jesus that it's really devastating for, mm-hmm. for that relationship. Um, which isn't to say that we shouldn't have people that we admire in our lives, but I think that um, it's probably been a saving grace to me yeah. that personally I haven't really had right. those people except people who have already passed on and whom the saints have, or the, whom the church has held up as models of holiness. Yeah, I was just talking to a friend of mine too, that it, it's always good, I think, to remember that, you know, it's God's love in them. It's like God loving us yes. through these people. Yes. And so it doesn't mean that they're perfect or they got the whole picture, but God used them in this moment, this time in my life in a powerful way to help me or inspire me or something. Exactly, and to yeah. recognize that that's true even when that person had no personal merit, right? right? Like right. You, can have, you can have an encounter with somebody that is entirely graced and find out later that that person was not who you thought they were. I mean, yeah. even just simply, I had a, a really amazing, well, I thought I had a really amazing confession um, a year or two ago and then discovered later that that priest hadn't been validly baptized, so he was not in fact a priest. And oh, was the big famous one? Uh, it was the second one. Oh, um, so that one was in Michigan and this one was in Oklahoma. I'm scrolling Twitter and I see this guy and I was like, oh, Father Zach. And then I read the headline and I said, oh, Zach. Okay. And I was telling a friend of mine, I had such a great confession with him. And she said, did you? And I said, okay, I had a great conversation with him about fortunately venial sins. And then we prayed together afterwards. You know, but like it really was like a profound experience of the Holy Spirit. and. Yeah and of conviction of my sin and of healing that happened purely by by this miraculous grace because the man did not have the capacity to absolve me. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know that and I didn't know that and it wasn't anybody's fault. But even in a situation like that to say, you know, this wasn't what I thought it was, but God was still at work in right. that. And to be able to say that, you know, if you've had if you've had heroes or or loved ones who have fallen from grace or whose, you know, predations have become known in later years to be able to say like that moment can still have been real and Mm -hmm. a real experience of God's love and mercy, even if the medium for it was somebody that I need to distance myself from now. Yeah. Did you have uh, like a big conversion experience in your life? You were always... I did. Yeah. Um, I was 13. Mm -hmm. And so... 
it's it's different from a lot of stories, right? I, I grew up Catholic. I had rejected the faith by the time I was 11, uh, was an atheist, very angry, dealing with a lot of internal turmoil, a lot of despair. Um, and then I got dragged on a confirmation retreat when I was 13. And one by one, every girl in my small group went to confession. And I thought, if I don't go to confession, no one will be my friend, which is not real, mm-hmm. right? None of those 13-year-old <laughs> girls were like, sorry, we're only friends with people who have themselves a sacramental absolution, <laughs> right? But I got up and walked into confession purely out of imaginary peer pressure. And I think God in his goodness was like, okay, good enough, <laughs> we'll right? Take I'll take it. Yeah, and I just had this this profound experience of mercy. And I remember walking out of the confessional being like, okay, like this is real. And I thought it wasn't, but if it is, it requires everything. It requires all of me Um, and made a commitment that I was, I was like, God wrote one book, right? So I'm gonna read the whole Bible and the church has one book. So I'm gonna read the whole catechism, (laughs) right? I mean, the church has a lot more books than that, but you know, you're looking for the definitive thing in 1997 and it's, it's that new JP2 catechism. So it, yeah, it was kind of no turning back from there. And have you experienced God's grace? I mean, like at 11, you had a lot of turmoil. Was there a lot of healing that was yet to come that you experienced? Or? You know, a lot of a lot of the misery in my life was sort of this existential nihilism, right? This mm-hmm. idea that that there was no meaning to life and that I was never going to be happy and that I was never going to measure up. You know, this this feeling that no matter how hard I tried, I was never going to be enough. And I think it's something that that we all deal with at some point. Um, but for me, you know, it wasn't it wasn't clinical depression or anxiety. Um, it really was just wrestling with the emptiness of life without Jesus. And so when I met Jesus, it just answered that question. And I still had big feelings. I have always had big feelings. And I spent most of my teen years crying. I actually wrote my college entrance exam on storming out of the house sobbing because I did it that frequently that my my college entrance essay, right? Like that's what I felt they needed to know about me is how often I cry. Um, You know, that was still there. I was still wrestling with those things, but at the root of it was the certainty that I was loved. And that changed everything because all of the surface stuff may still have been the same, but there was a foundation that kept me stable. Whereas before I had been so unmoored that anything could set me adrift. And now I might be utterly shaken, but my feet were standing on solid ground. Mm-hmm. And that was largely from the confession. Yeah, oh, wow. just meeting Jesus in that confessional. Yeah. And I had a really amazing youth group, um, actually several amazing youth groups at my church and then Fellowship of Christian Athletes at my school. But one of the youth groups at my church, you made membership commitments. And so when you became a full member, you committed to going to mass every day. So I was 16 years old and I stood up in front of God, my family and my community and I promised that I was going to go to mass every day. And it wasn't like there wasn't a time limit on it. Um, And so I think everybody else graduated from high school, left the youth group, figured they were done with that commitment. But I was just like, well, I said I was going to go every day. So I'm just going to go every day until I die. Like, I, I don't know. But that that was an enormous grace, just that devotion to the sacramental life of the church that sort of transcended my being busy or my desire to go to mass that I was like, I said I was going to, and and I have to. Yeah. And I went to confession one time to a priest who was a member of 
the community that sponsored this group, you know, and I would go to confession all the time at 16 years old and confess that I hadn't been to daily mass every day. And the priest would be like, oh, honey, like, it's okay. You don't have to, you don't have to confess that. You're going to blow the transaction. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I went to this priest and he looked at the cross I was wearing, my membership cross, and he said, you're a full member? And I said, yes. And it, he said, then there's no excuse. If you can make it, you make it. And, you know, it's beautiful to have priests who are very comforting and who understand people's weakness. But I think that he in that moment knew that what I needed was to be told, you can be everything that God is calling you to be. You don't need, you don't need to take these concessions, right? You have it in you to be a saint and it is time to start. Mm. And yeah, it was just really, it was a powerful thing as a young person to be treated like an adult in my faith, to be treated like I really had the capacity to be a saint in that moment, that I wasn't just sort of a disaster and everybody was waiting for me to stop being a mess before I could finally figure myself out. They were like, you'll be a saint right now. And I, I was kind of like, yeah, okay. If that's what you're asking me to do, then I'm gonna do it, right? And I, you know, I was a jerk and I was super judgmental and I yelled at people all the time and I, you know, Right. Like I, I didn't become a saint, but but I was really convicted that it was possible for me to continue pursuing that, whatever it was that I was struggling with. And today, like, what is it, if you're talking to maybe a young person today, what is so great about the Mass? What's so great about the Eucharist? Dang, Father. <laughs> what is so great about the Eucharist? Why would make such a big deal? I mean, it's God himself, right? <laughs> I love that, that line from... Um, it's not Tolkien, it's Fulton Sheen. The greatest love affair of all time is contained in a tiny white host. And to say to people, like, the God who created the universe, who holds galaxies in the palms of his hand, who longed for you since before there was time, who sent prophets crying out his love for you, who came into this world, his own self, was born in a stable and laid in a manger, was ignored and rejected and finally betrayed, stripped naked, beaten to a pulp, nailed to a cross to suffocate to death for you, rose from the dead. That God came back and he waits for you. He said in John 14, 18, I will not leave you orphans. And he comes for you and he waits for you in the blessed sacrament loving all that you are, holding nothing back because all he wants is you. And that's, it's worth dying for. It's worth living for. And when you go to the church and pray, what do you, what's, what do you, give us some tips. What do you do? <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it depends, right? Like I think there are, there's so many different ways to pray and there's so many different ways to talk to God. Um, I actually, I wrote a blog post called 50 Ways to Talk to God because I think we get sort of fenced into this idea that prayer is a rosary or prayer is a petitions or prayer is the liturgy of the hours. And those things are all true, but different styles of prayer work for different people. And as Catholics, we have this enormous volume of styles of spirituality that we can dabble in, right? Like, and it doesn't even have to be just Western Catholicism, right? Like you can look to these Eastern Catholic models of praying and try different things. You know, you'll talk to people who are like, oh, well, I'm terrible at the rosary. And I'm, I mean, first of all, me too, but I pray it anyway, because I feel like God has asked me to. But there are other ways of having Marian devotion than the rosary, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you don't have to pray the rosary to be a good Catholic. So I would really recommend 
trying different styles of prayer, trying Ignatian meditation or Lexio Divina, checking out the Liturgy of the Hours, listening to praise music, listening to chant music, right? singing in Latin, whatever it is, um, trying something and then being still for 15 minutes, mm -hmm. right? You know, every day making that space for silence, um, but, but giving God also the chance to work through these, these different traditions of prayer in the church, because you may find that there are are certain things that really speak to your heart in a way that you didn't think was possible. And for some people, it's gonna be you know, going for a walk in nature, which for years I was like, that's just hippie nonsense, right? Yeah. Like God is in the church, he's not in the trees. And then I, <laughs> then St. Francis was like, I'm gonna need you to take a deep breath, <laughs> right? Because this is actually like a really ancient tradition of encountering God, but it can't, like none of these different, different styles of spirituality can come at the exclusion of being still before the Lord, right? These are these are the springboard into silence, into that attempt at contemplation. But it really helps to have something that you're starting with, so that when you're spending this time in silence with the Lord, you're not just like, well, I got nothing, you know. Like when you've got nothing, you go back to what you were just doing lexio on, or you go back to that piece of artwork that you were just meditating on, and you allow the Lord to speak through that. Yeah, and something I've been trying to do more, it just reminded of in the book, is to find a little passage or phrase and just repeat it. Yes. Meditatively. Yes, I think it's hugely helpful. I tell people um, to pick an anchor for their prayer, and it might be a word or a phrase. It might be a... Uh, a very repetitive song, it might be an image, it might be a crucifix held in your hand. Some people are very tactile. Uh, some people, their prayer is really rooted in storytelling, so it could be a gospel story, but like something as an anchor. And then I'll go in and I'll just try and be still with the Lord. But when I'm distracted, I go back to that anchor, right? Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. And I mm -hmm. sit holding on to that anchor and then I try and be still again. And then when I'm thinking about my grocery list, I go back to that anchor. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Because we can't just empty our minds, right? First of all, it's not really possible. And second of all, it's not Christian prayer to just be empty, right? We empty ourselves of the nonsense in order to be filled with Christ. And so to have something that you're, that you're clinging to, that you're going back to, makes it, I think, possible for prayer to be more than just a constant series of frustrations that you're distracted or this this eastern spirituality um, that right. that focuses on the emptiness instead right. of being filled i find powerful too like if we maybe you're struggling with something maybe you're afraid of something to kind of examine that yeah sometimes i mean that makes prayer very real it's mm -hmm. like i don't know it helps me to say okay god i need you in this right now yes i'm bringing this and it's something too. Father Joseph taught me this that, uh, like, he'll find a passage of scripture. How did you find that? Where'd you? So I just Googled it. You know, uh -huh. I remember over the years, I'd forget he told me, I'd ask him, oh, I just Googled it. So that's what I do. I say, you know, Bible verse on whatever. Okay. And they'll, some Protestant pastor Always. has usually <laughs> assembled a number of verses addressing this issue. And there's something about just getting honest with God and with the reality yes. of your life. And then this is what we need to pray about today, yes. you know? Yeah, and the, the beauty of 
the silence is that you can't hide from the feelings you've been trying to smush down, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'll go in and I'm doing fine and I'm busy and I'm ducking into the church from a holy hour and I sit down and I'm like, all right, Lord, well, I got really nothing going on. And then I like suddenly feel that stomach ache that I've been ignoring all day and that the stomach <laughs> ache is actually anxiety and it's yeah. because of a thing that I said to somebody that I shouldn't have said to that person. Yeah. And now Jesus and I are actually going to process this. Right. But it's not, it's not something that I can ignore because I'm just filling my life with noise. And it's also not something that I'm now going to like soak in the misery of because I'm processing it in prayer. Right. And so Jesus and I are going to talk about it and I'm going to give it to him. Right. And we're going to keep working through it until I feel like, okay, like I can take a deep breath. And it's not like, you know, your meditation is just going to substitute for therapy and you're never going to need any help from anybody. Like go to therapy. If you need medication, get medication. Right. These things are beautiful and gifts that the Lord gives us to help us find healing. But I think that spending that time in prayer just helps to bring to the surface those things that we're not we don't feel ready to process on our own. And Jesus sits there and says, okay, well, I'm here. Let's talk about it together. And there's a lot more depth there than we think. Mm -hmm. It's like if we get just a little bit honest, it's like, whoa, there's a lot there to talk about. Yes. I didn't you know, about nature too. I, you know, I was a Boy Scout, loved being outdoors. I even had like, you know, like moving experiences, seeing something beautiful. But it's like COVID opened that up for me in a new way because mm. <laughs> I found myself walking to kind of de-stress yeah or to take phone calls i love to do that if i got to call somebody back or talk to somebody i'll do it while walking and just try to find the prettiest area and um and so now i'm more intentional with trying to make time you know just like sundays fall here and took a, a walk and and i was the colors were at the height for alabama and i i was going up this little hilly part in the trail and started to breathe harder and and I just you know, like the new agers talk about breath and all this kind of stuff but I just thought there was something powerful just about inhaling a big fresh yes. breath of air yes like my lungs are working I'm being replenished you yes. know God's like giving me air to breathe and it was it was something so relaxing and just yeah. to get me out of stress the grind or whatever yeah and that's one way that I pray often is just breathing slowly with the name of Jesus, right? So like a deep breath in and then in my mind saying the name of Jesus as I breathe out as that anchor. But I think often we we feel uncomfortable with the bodiliness of being human. Um, and and so we don't we don't want our body to be involved in prayer. Or if we do, we want it to be sort of an ascetical thing, right? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna kneel on rice and then my prayer is stronger. But just to know that people are different, right? right. C.S. Lewis talks in the Screwtape Letters, I believe, about the importance of posture in prayer. And I read that, that like, you know, if you're really going to pray well, you need to be sitting a certain way or kneeling a certain way. So you've got the focus. And I, I thought that that was gospel truth. And then I realized that that's just him. Mm -hmm. And I pray best in an easy chair. Like if there is a recliner, every once in a while you find an adoration chapel with a recliner and I am here for it. And I'm sure some people find it irreverent, but if my body is comfortable enough that I can stop thinking about it, then I can personally be more present. Other people pray the best when their body is involved in that. And in under the Catholic umbrella, there is just so much room for all of those different types of prayer. 
what do you do kind of to relax? You know, is there something that kind of rejuvenates you? I really like sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do as much of it as I would like to. You're an extrovert. You like talking to people, right? I sure do. As long as it's a meaningful conversation. I don't have a lot of patience for, um, for people who, who just want to make small talk. But it is definitely, it's life-giving to me to sit with people in their brokenness and allow the Lord to speak through me. Um, now that can be super draining when I don't have the answers they need or, you know, but, but when I'm encountering somebody who is unsure of God's love for them and I'm able to speak truth into that, that is enormously life-giving to me. Those, those conversations, I think, are the only reason that I'm able to sustain what I do. Um, I also like Netflix a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to Great British Bake Off. Uh -huh. I could watch all day long. Right? I mean, I I won't I won't watch it all day long. But um, yeah, I just I feel like I don't get a ton of time to just relax. And so if I can, I, I'm really happy to be asleep. You know, I, my dad used to live bookstores. I remember Saturday we'd kind of go into town and run some errands and find our way to a bookstore and. He loved just to look at stuff. And I I hadn't done that. I mean, I'll go like to maybe a religious bookstore. Mm -hmm. I'd say, okay, I need this for preaching. I'm right, right. Very practical. And then I went into the secular bookstore the other day, small, you know, individually owned thing. Very curated books, you know, and liberal books at that. <laughs> but I had the funnest time looking at a few books. And it, it just kind of like got me out of my world that, um, there's something about it just to kind of relax, do something fun, mm -hmm. be stimulated. Mm -hmm. That was it. Yeah, I love reading, love reading. I don't think of it as something I do to relax because I get really excited and invested and read too long and don't sleep. <laughs> so when I'm reading a good book, I am usually more tired than when I'm not. And I, I mean, even as a teacher... I would go into school some, day, some days and I'd be bleary-eyed. And my kids knew me so well. They'd be like, Ms. HK, did you get stuck in a book last night? And I'd be like, yeah, till 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> right? So, yeah, so I don't think of, uh, of reading as a relaxing thing. I think of it as a, a driving force in my life, I guess. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just, I would invite people um, to, uh, to figure out a way to incorporate silence into their prayer life every day and to figure out a way um, to sit with scripture every day. And it can be something really simple, like just starting at Matthew 1 and reading a section of the gospel every day until you get through the gospels. Um, but we, we sometimes forget the incredible importance of scripture in the life of a Christian because we have so many different ways to encounter God. Uh, so yeah, I would I would challenge our readers to or our listeners uh, to make time for scripture and to make time for silence in their lives. I know I always think it'd be such a great thing just take this the coming Sunday readings, you know, the lay person, mm -hmm. read them through first part of the week and try to. It seems like the homily, or whatever the mass, would be more meaningful. Yeah, for you, you know, absolutely. Well, thank you, Meg, so much for talking with us. It's been great. My pleasure. Thank you. Mm -hmm.